Hello and welcome back to another episode of Deja View, the show where we talk about new releases and the classic movies that influence them. My name is Sydney Brownfield and I am joined by co-host Rachel Weinberg. This week begins our new mini-series where we will be discussing science fiction. When I was thinking about what we should talk about this semester as we gradually emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, which felt straight out of a science fiction thriller movie in itself, I felt this would be a great time to discuss the genre of science fiction. To begin this series, I went to American Film Institute's website and pulled from their list of the top 10 greatest sci-fi films of all time. AFI defies science fiction as a genre that marries scientific or technological premise with imaginative speculation. In this five-part science fiction series, we will be discussing the films Star Wars Episode IV, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Alien, and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. But we will be starting the series today by discussing the film that, without some of these other films, it may not have come to be. Today, we will be talking about the film AFI has labeled as number one on the list, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Awesome. I'm excited to talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey and all these movies with you. I feel similar to you and how you were talking about science fiction over COVID. I feel like I really latched on to horror. I feel like both genres have a sense of escapism, but also a really deep connection to humanity and the problems that we're facing, not only currently, but throughout history. So I think genres like this deserve to have more discussion, especially since the validity of them are often questioned by mainstream critics. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. Diving in to 2001 A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick and written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. This film stars Kira Dulia as Dr. Dave Bowman, Gary Lockwood as Dr. Frank Poole, William Sylvester as Dr. Haywood R. Floyd, and Douglas Rain as the voice of H.A.L. or HAL 9000, and lastly, Daniel Reichter as Moonwatcher. It's a, it's a really interesting cast that they have because a lot of these names aren't names that really stick out to us but in the case of Douglas Rain who passed away I think two or three years ago it's a voice that we've all heard many times before it's really interesting with how 9000's character was that Kubrick saw this 1960s short film called Universe which was about space and Douglas Rain narrated it and he was so entranced by this voice that he when making this movie called up Rain and said please work on this movie with me and Stanley Kubrick doesn't beg for anyone and because he was Stanley Kubrick even though he was kind of nervous about it Rain said yes and now it's probably his most well-known role so I know I was gonna say I can't imagine any other voice for this part it's somehow you know, towards the beginning of like this character's introduction, he appears to have almost this warm sense to his voice. And yet he imagines to make it so chilling towards the end of his time on screen. The plot of this film is after discovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, mankind sets off on a quest to find its origin with help from the intelligent supercomputer HAL 9000. But in reality, it is about so much more than that. I mean, truly, that is an extremely oversimplified synopsis of what we see take place on screen. Yeah, it's hard to categorize this film because it's really about all of mankind from the most primitive age to 
the very far future. I, I think it's really interesting though in how this film is about so much time that's passed, but it's still so deeply connected with the 1960s. IBM, which still is around today, but not in the way that they were the supercomputer of the 60s, was actually the technology that Kubrick used to help make how. And they were initially going to make it IBM computers, but because the owner, for some reason, I mean, not for some reason, but the owner is very Christian. They didn't want AI to have any autonomy because they thought it went against God's will, which is the craziest thing you would ever hear from a computer company. So instead of IBM, they made it H-A-L, which is the letter above every single letter in IBM. So just a fun fact. Yeah, that really is so strange to think about because now I don't think I can ever associate this movie for anything other than giving that sort of agency to an AI. I mean, I really think it was one of the films that solidified this science fiction trope of don't trust AI. Like, What's interesting is in the early stages of development, uh, when Kubrick and Clark were setting out to tell this story, initially they wanted to write a full-length book that would come out before the movie, but the two of them began to clash heads because Kubrick grew worried because he didn't want the audience to know the ending of the film before having seen it, which I, I can understand that sort of um, paranoia around. So in the end, the screenplay was purely adapted from Clark's 1951 short story titled The Sentinel. As a whole, before we dive into more specifics, Rachel, why do you like this movie in particular? What about it like speaks to you as an individual? So for me, this is a movie that is a grower. When I first watched it as a little kid, I really didn't see the whole thing. I only saw the star child part. And my dad just had it on TV and it deeply traumatized me. Like that image is just so terrifying. And then I saw it in high school because I wanted to go to film school and I needed to watch it. And I was like, it's fine. But then now this is the really pretentious part of me. I saw it in 70 millimeter, like for a midnight movie. It was so cheap. And I was like, I'll just go just to experience it in 70 millimeter. Like they all say you have to. And being alone in a theater at midnight, just watching the part whenever they're going through time and space and they're just these rainbows is maybe the most like visceral experience I've ever had in a theater. And I think what really sticks out to me about this movie is the idea of human innovation, but the most human character is what they created in HAL 9000. He is the only character in the whole movie who has an appreciation for his life, so much so that he's willing to kill for it when everyone else is so passive about what's happening to them. Even whenever you have opened the pod bay doors, Hal, it's this notion of just asking and asking and asking and not actually initially just fighting for your life. And when he sings Daisy at the end, it really makes me emotional. I, I just think it's such a beautiful moment. And I think that's something that's really fascinating and really stunning about his work because Kubrick is known for not being a human director. Why did you want to talk about this movie? I think for me, I had a very similar reaction to you. I think it's definitely a grower. The first time watching this film, I was like, what did I just experience? Because it really is. It's it has this huge impact on you as a viewer, especially if you don't know what you're getting into. And I, I, I took a break from it. I hadn't watched it for a couple of years. And then I was looking into sci-fi for this series and it was number one on their list. And I was like, I need to rewatch this. Like, I, I really need to understand like the overall like impact of this film. And now, I mean, looking at it with a cinematically trained eye, you, you can't ignore that this film has like directly impacted at least 
like the next 40 to 50 years of like science fiction filmmakers that have come out. So it, just, it felt too important and too impactful to not talk about for me. <laughs> I think that makes total sense. And I think in the movies to come that we'll talk about, we'll see a lot of like nods of the hat. Is that top, like nodding your hat? <laughs> um, like a lot of references to this movie, which I think it's a really good place to start. So right away in this film, you have this harsh juxtaposition between this iconic, grandiose title sequence with 2001 A Space Odyssey and that, that very iconic theme to then this hard cut to the rich red, orange, organic world that we see like the dawn of man. Something for me, again, the first time watching this, I was completely thrown for a loop. What did you think of this? Yeah, I have to agree with that, especially just that quick cut there. I think this sequence is really about the connection between man and the knowledge that we're searching for. So in that title sequence, that sun is, is in our reach, but it's so far away. And maybe that's essentially meant to ground us so that we're able to see this like knowledge that we push so deeply for, but never actually able to touch it. It's the limitation of man from far away to then just being drenched in that orangeness. And isn't it just so powerful? Kubrick as a filmmaker can do that in just a single cut. Like that, it just, I think it speaks to his skill as a filmmaker and why again, he's one of the greatest filmmakers that he has that power truly through um, his shot choice. Uh, speaking of the shots, I feel like we have to talk about the scene transition that it's taught to almost every rising filmmaker around the country as Moonwatcher throws that bone that he just used as like the first tool ever into the air to graphic match it to uh, the space shuttle in the air. For me, it was like extremely powerful, like something I had read about and then to see it articulated on the screen, it was, a really exciting experience for me. How did how did you interpret it? I feel like it's supposed to relate to the evolution of man, but more importantly, the fact that we've always utilized weaponry before, even before we were fully evolved. And it's showing that even from the beginning of mankind, using a bone as a weapon and then taking that in the air, nothing has changed to the point where we're using these satellites and these spacecrafts as essentially weapons too. So I think it shows man's own self-interest. What did you think about it? I wholeheartedly love your interpretation. I think it's also just, it's a very great commentary on knowledge as a whole, because the, the way I saw this film, again, there's endless interpretations of it, but this knowledge offered by the monolith however you interpret it, it, it starts this evolution of the way in which humans begin thinking and we're able to articulate our power in using these tools. So similar to you being able to see our, our tools predominantly be composed of weapons, but also play as this downfall of the natural world, I thought was powerful. That makes, I think that makes total sense. Like that match cut's just one of the most, I think, the thing that people look for most whenever they think of this movie is that sequence. Right. And as we discuss like the everlasting reach of Kubrick's work, I do feel it notable to mention he was a renowned perfectionist. And I think that shines through in this film. I mean, everything you can just tell he put as much attention to detail and specifics and accuracy as he could, but it did lead to some friction on set, which I think is pretty interesting. On the film, 
he did not allow his stuntman, uh, Bill Weston, to wear a second cable during a stunt, despite being 30 feet off the ground, which led to an almost serious accident because, as you guessed, the cable snapped from the weight of the actor. He also wouldn't allow Weston to poke holes in the back of his space helmet, which meant the stuntman was perpetually on the verge of blacking out from carbon dioxide poisoning. What are your thoughts on just this practice as a whole? So I I think, yeah, Kubrick's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, and I respect that, but I don't think he was a good person. Like, I, I just want to straight up say that. I, I think that his level of perfectionism ended up creating a level of animosity for the actors that he had, and Eyes Wide Shut, I know that he made Tom Cruise walk through the same door over a hundred times because he wanted the perfect walk. And I think that we can see over and over and over again from actors who've worked with him is he is not about the human connection so much as he's about that visuals. Um, and I think that's why it's so interesting that this movie, the humanity comes from the machine when this guy is working with the camera as the apparatus. But yeah, I think it, I think it raises a lot of questions of why do we accept this from these directors? Yeah, I mean, Thankfully, I, I do like to hope that you know, we as a culture and the industry as a whole are pushing past allowing professionals like this to continue. I know often advice that I've been given is you never have to take that sort of treatment from anybody. So while Kubrick's genius is unmatched, hopefully we never have to experience a filmmaker with his robotic nature uh, ever. <laughs> But again, even if you haven't seen the film, you can't watch a majority of science fiction movies without seeing uh, Kubrick's impact, which again is why it's almost so difficult uh, to know that he was such a horrible person to a lot of his crew members. Working on this film, he was really determined to avoid fantastic, exaggerated depictions of space, which were the only depictions of space really prior to this film coming out. He really tried to emphasize instead realism and scientific accuracy throughout the filmmaking. I know that was one of the reasons that he ended up choosing not to depict whoever the extraterrestrials are or the aliens that are in charge of uh, the monolith was because he really wanted to try and depict the most accurate depiction of space, which is why there's that conspiracy that he may have helped fake the moon landing because it is, it looks so realistic throughout this entire um, film. Yeah, I think Kubrick was a starting point for a lot of these directors. And I think when we talk about some of the directors in the coming movies, we're going to see a couple instances of Kubrick's impact, not only on screen, but also behind the scenes and how he treats his actors. And I think the price of what it means to have that perfect shot of space which yeah every I I believe I don't believe that Kubrick did the moon landing but I I believe that people still believe that because of his accuracy and his depictions and his focus on detail it'll be really interesting to see how his space travel competes with these future ones like contrasting from Star Wars but similar again in Alien you know exactly I think it's really it speaks to the power of his work because you just even look at the the top 10 films on AFI's list, half of these filmmakers, you know, Spielberg, George Lucas, Ridley Scott, all were, they claim to be completely mesmerized by Kubrick's version and films. But interestingly enough, this film did not get great reviews initially by critics, but it did 
uh, garner huge praise from counterculture audiences who responded to the film's philosophical implications. What do you think about that, Where when the critics don't usually agree with what film enthusiasts do? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think with sci-fi as a genre, especially, we've got, we're going to have a lot of that, where initially critics don't understand the greatness that these directors are able to make these filmmakers. And there have been, this has been the case with quite a few of Kubrick's movies, from Lolita to Eyes Wide Shut, to even some stances on The Shining. He's an acquired taste because of the way that he utilizes his performances. One of my favorite critics, Pauline Kael, really hated this movie. Um, I actually pulled one of her quotes. She said it was trash masquerading as art and monumentally unimaginative. And I think that when you're living in this Cold War period where the notion of mass weaponry is quite real and space travel is quite daunting, instead of just having this escapist film, you have Kubrick who's making a film that's quite sympathetic to machinery over man. So it makes sense to me in the context of the time for critics to not appreciate this, but it's really interesting to see how from 1969 to now, how much it's changed with critical perception. Right, I think it gets at much of Kubrick's work, just as you've said, ranging from Eyes Wide Shut to The Shining, have a very dreamlike surrealist elements to their endings. Uh, you watch the plot unravel and Kubrick tends to care more about the emotions and the feelings that are invoked in his viewers rather than how they understand what's technically happening on screen and with his plot points. I, I personally feel this definitely holds true for 2001. Just as you said earlier, you watch that. It's a long time. You watch the just the rainbows and this vivid imagery on screen unfold and it's definitely more of an emphasis on how that makes you feel as a viewer compared to trying to rationalize what it is. For sure. I think, I think it brings up the question um, that I know a lot of theorists and critics have brought up, and it's, is film about a mode of storytelling or is it about a mode of visual pleasure? And I think this film is kind of leaning towards the visual pleasure, but still has this really wide story for us to also connect with. I think, you know, when I'm watching this film for me personally, I can find a thread to follow for a majority of it. I'm, I'm watching the monolith and we watch it go from the earliest days of human to then we watch it appear on the moon. It's connecting these seemingly unconnected plot lines and then it emits this radio signal which sends the humans to Jupiter and this whole time I'm watching it and I can, I can see this subliminal critique of like bureaucracy, government agencies, their inability to be transparent about their work. In addition to, again, Kubrick establishing one of the biggest tropes in science fiction, which is don't trust AI. I mean, we're gonna see that specifically more in like Ridley Scott's work looking ahead in the series. But then I get to the ending and I, I was just whooshed like into this new world that I could not, gain my footing in it was just it was such a surreal experience watching I think even for the second and third times for me I mean this may get me discredited by the film community but I definitely think <laughs> the first time I watched this and even now the ending continues to completely baffle me I think that you're supposed to be baffled like I feel the same way it's so much 
so much is happening in front of your eyes. You're moving all across time and space. That's that's a lot for us to unravel. I totally understand what you're saying there. I think it's hard because the film is meant to be jarring. It's meant to make you think, especially when you're positioning yourself in the Cold War and in the space race. But it, it can be very overwhelming. And I feel like I remember the end not the the last shot but my the way the movie ends for me a lot is that the death of Hal I feel like after that it kind of feels like that story is contained and then we're moving on into a new story if that makes sense kind of similar to just these like circular patterns that the planets are moving in as well this just cycle but I I think I don't think you would be discredited by anyone it's just it's a rough movie to watch definitely and I mean I, I like your thought on how when Hal dies, that's that's a conclusion to a plot line. I think that really helps me put it into a different perspective. I, that entire unfolding of Hal's life, really, it gives me goosebumps every time I've watched it because it's the power in what they have Hal say, where it's like, I, I feel it fleeting. He's like, I feel it. And it, it, that's just, it's so powerful to hear this AI being like, I feel everything I can experience slowly being taken from me. And then I think that just like you said, like combined with him singing Daisy, it's just, just like, they just ended like the, the most humane thing that still remained. I, I often wonder if the reason why that, that character is done so delicately is because, not saying that Kubrick thought he was all-known, but if in some places he saw himself, like he was never truly able to connect with others, but he connected to this technological powerhouse that was cinema, and he was able to see and feel through that, and I wonder when he was writing how, if he kind of took a little bit of himself in that. That's really beautiful, because there's a weird fact in that Kubrick would often, he played chess all throughout high school, and he would often play chess against his actors or other uh, filmmakers he was working with to like settle arguments and be like, okay, you want your character to do this, beat me in a game of chess. And we see in this film that the other people on this ship cannot beat Hal at chess. So I think it's a really probably valid comparison to say that Kubrick saw a lot of himself in this AI technology. Kubrick saw himself as all knowing, but seeing his demise was his creation could be kind of true a little bit (laughs) I think definitely getting into that ending I have heard so many different ways of interpreting it and they're clearly I I don't think Kubrick wanted there to be a right one you know given the time and just he he created this film in a level of uncertainty you know again his obsession with the cold war and where technology was taking us and space travel as a whole like he made this film before man had ever walked on the moon. Like being able to create something that's so powerful yet open-ended, I, I feel like needs needs to be discussed a, a little bit. When I was trying to come to some sort of rationale with it, I ended up thinking of the old quote, we are all made of star stuff and quote, you know, Carl Sagan logic. Where do you find yourself uh, landing and in interpreting this ending? I think that's a really good quote for this one. I I have to say, I feel like, speaking of stars, the star child to me really represents the evolution of man to the point where we become one with like the machine. Um, This like all knowing, not necessarily the technological idea of it, but like the idiosyncrasies of machinery kind of stripping away our humanity to be something that's 
more present in our thoughts. Um, but again, that's something that won't happen, but I think that it's something that's really interesting and especially terrifying when you're going through such a vast industrial revolution, especially with space travel. And I guess it kind of makes me question, do our wants mean more than the lives that are in front of us? It really does make you think, again, I've, I've now seen this probably four or five times, especially rewatching it for our discussion on it. I don't know. I think something that is interesting is on trying to draw that conclusion and make this commentary that they chose the image of like human infancy, like the, the simplest form of human cognition I thought was really powerful to choose. And just that last shot of like staring back at you as the viewer, I just think is so powerful and making it like larger than life. Like it's literally larger than the planet surrounding it. I thought was huge and chilling in a sense also. I think the ending is both exciting and terrifying in a way. He, he definitely accomplished his goal of having our emotions and feelings outweigh what we can comprehend on screen. For sure. I think first that level of infancy is really important because when we're infantile, we don't have an understanding of like of human perception yet either. So it's this kind of what is in front of me to survive, which I think is really interesting coming back and really face to face at the end with um, in that bed area. But I think that the film is not only supposed to be just vis visually entrancing, but also emotionally devastating. Um, again, like when I watched this when I was really young, I remember being so fearful. And even when I was much older, I think in like middle school, high school, I remember asking my dad saying, hey, what's that movie with the giant baby that floats? Because it was something that really struck me. And I wonder if in Kubrick's case, and a question I would have for you is, do these striking visuals, just these like intense visuals that we're meant to look at, do, is it, does it matter what the intention was or does it matter on how like our initial visceral reaction to them is? That's so interesting because I would argue that my first instinctual reaction when I viewed this for the first time was probably my most closed-minded one, if that makes any sense, because it shocked me so much. I almost closed myself off from trying to think about what it was trying to evoke or allude to. Yeah, I definitely would not have wanted to, to even think about this giant fetus floating in space, alluding to anything greater than the like pit in my stomach I felt when I saw it for the first time. Because I, I think as a whole, this it just it makes humans confront things that make us uncomfortable. We watch as Dave ages rapidly before our eyes and just time as a whole is fleeting and I think scares a lot of people and we watch him age and age and age in this very surreal and unfamiliar environment to then again see the monolith and then cut to he's the youngest he will ever be in life with a consciousness like that sort of like seeing the world through new eyes look I don't think I could have ever gotten on, on the first watch through. So even though he was successful in getting me to feel these emotions of fear and anxiety, I don't think I could ever grasp anything more than that until I came at it with fresh eyes or <laughs> new eyes. 
For sure. No, that's a really good way of looking at it. And I think too, if this film is all about evolution, I think that it makes sense for it to be a grower. I think it makes sense for us to evolve with it every time we watch. That was a really good way of putting it. Like that really was. I don't think this is a film you could view passively. I don't think it's just something you could say, all right, I'm just going to turn on 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like it's definitely a journey every time I have watched it. I I come away either being frustrated at, at like humans and how we treat ourselves. Are we our own undoing? Uh, is there anything else out there? Like there's just so many uncertainties that he tackles in this film that I truly do get something different out of it every time I have watched it. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, I think that's the right way to view it, you know, to, to open yourself up every time. And, you know, however you do end up interpreting everything and anything in this film, because there is, there is so much and so many different ways. You can't deny that it's forever changed the course of science fiction. I mean, just when I rewatched it this week, not a film that we will be discussing in this series, but I saw in the video recordings that people could send back and forth from the space shuttle to the crew members. I was like, this just radiates interstellar. Like that, that is the key point of interstellar and being able to like humanize these characters. And I was like, all I, all I can see now is that that was directly drawn from this film. For sure there, I, I think this is one of the most drawn upon films ever made so much because of the fact that it's all in all encompassing of humanity as well as these visuals that we get to see but without 2001 there there wouldn't be an alien which is a film we're talking about there wouldn't be another like more recent film like under the skin it revolutionized the exploration of space under the camera and i think part of that is because we as man are always longing for that unknown but another part of that is because kubrick was just able to so masterfully like utilize the um, miniatures and the way that space looks to, as you said before, people thought he faked the moon landing. But I'm really excited in the next couple of weeks for us to really dig into these, also these groundbreaking science fiction films, but create a thread and connect them to one another. I totally agree. I think this will be a really exciting series. I think it'll be a lot of fun. And I, I look forward to as a whole being able to pull from and look back upon 2001, which I really do think started the trend of what we can know and associate with science fiction. So in terms of ranking this film, I personally feel like it definitely deserves all of the praise it receives. I think it should be experienced by everyone. As I said, you can't watch it passively. It definitely, it, it gets you to think whether you want it to or not. I personally give it like a four out of five because while it's great for my A-type logical screenwriting brain, it totally is too mind-boggling for me and surreal, though I genuinely appreciate it and will never deny its impact on film as a whole. I, I definitely see where you're coming from on that. The script is wild. I think that this is a, a perfect movie and I, I feel like if, there, if we didn't have 2001, we wouldn't have so many other movies. So I think because of what it was able to create out of its own production is enough for me. But additionally, just like I, it's a movie that moves me when it shouldn't. And I really respect that. And I really respect that I'm able to grow with the movie. And it's especially telling 
because it's about, you know, man's quest for enlightenment. And now we're living in a world where we're filled with AI, where we can talk to our phones and tell them to set an alarm or remind us to do something. We have howls all around us. And I think that as a society, we've been able to, as a society, I hate when people say that, but I just didn't. We live in a society. society. <laughs> but as a society, we've, we've grown with these ideas so much so that it's not only affecting the movies that we're making, but it's affecting the technology that we're, like, we're utilizing. And I, I just think, like, that comes from Kubrick's precision and care, and it's just so wonderful. But before we kind of wrap up, I wanted to ask you, so you came up with you came up with this idea for this series, right? You love science fiction, you love fantasy. Yes. So were these five movies that we're talking about? Because there were five more and you chose only half. Are these movies that really have gripped you and have held you? Were these the movies that made you fall in love with sci-fi or were there other movies that did that? These have definitely been, I think, the core films that have set the flame inside of me for my adoration of science fiction. I mean, going down the list, I know you and I have spoken about Star Wars, how I truly love the series, and you you could take it or leave it, more or less. <laughs> but also, I have vivid memories of the first time I watched E.T., and I love the film Alien, like more than I should. I love the film Alien. So definitely with the next three that we'll be talking about, I definitely have a personal connection to them and things that they have evoked in me and ways that I as a viewer and even as a, a writer and a filmmaker have changed after watching them. One that I think I am most excited to watch and discuss with you is Terminator 2 Judgment Day because I was going down this list of the top 10 science fiction films of all time and I went why is Terminator 2 Judgment Day on this list? <laughs> it just it it shocked me and it grabbed me and I went okay we we need to talk about this. But also, when I was mapping out this series, I felt there was an interesting thread in the humanity in science fiction, as well as these films' ability to evoke commentary on not only social issues or political issues of their times, like we see in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Fear of the Cold War, The Space Race, all of these impact this film. Like It would not be the same without this context we can see in like E.T., the treatment of animals and our relationship with the possibility of extraterrestrial life. And in Alien and Terminator 2, this like thread of AI, I think just like interests me a lot, especially now, like where we are in society <laughs> um, with our relationship to AI. I felt it very important to start this series discussing the film that, in my opinion, again, I really think solidified the trope of the complex relationship between humankind and AI. I completely, I think that's a really great way to kind of focus on all of this. And I completely agree about 2001. I am, I'm really excited to talk about these ones, especially, I, I love E.T. And I, I'm very excited to talk to you about how I believe that E.T. is just a divorced child story and like a child losing his father, um, which I, I'm very excited to talk about. That movie was one of my favorite movies as a little kid. Um, I'm excited to talk about the original Star Wars and Star Wars is so interesting because 
it's created a whole like just ginormous universe it's so profitable and it came from this little like movie by George Lucas oh that guy and <laughs> Alien Alien and Terminator 2 I think I think the reason why I enjoy sci-fi is because of the the way they write female characters and I I don't think that there's a stronger character in any movie than Ripley like Ripley is the most badass person ever I love the depiction of women in sci-fi but I also thought it was interesting to start with this one because the lack of, of women I think is you can't you can't avoid it in this film like the female characters that we have are either called to on video technology available or there there's the one female doctor who's asking for more information on the theoretical biohazard that's existing on this crater when it's actually just the government's cover-up of the um, monolith. So I, I felt it was interesting because I agree, I love science fiction for its ability to like talk about social issues and depict these badass women, but that films that do that are so heavily influenced by this very masculine film in my opinion for sure and that's it's really interesting because I think the robot has more character development than any woman in this movie and I I think that speaks a lot about Kubrick but I also think Alien for me has so much tied to 2001 I feel like Ridley Scott just was watching it and then writing so it's really interesting because the development alien when we get there it's so much a character study and again humanity and ai in, in alien so in and terminator too i'm excited i think it will be it will be really fun at the end of these five episodes to kind of look back and really think about what struck us from each each of these movies and what we've seen carry through i definitely agree so in doing that what struck me most about this film was its ability to terrify I and mesmerize me as a whole as a viewer every time I have watched it. What about you? Oh gosh, I think what strikes me in this film is my ability to care about a character that I should be rooting against. I guess that's it. Right, I mean the shot of that red eye staring at you is genuinely terrifying that maybe I should be concerned that you care more about the AI than the people. He just, he has, he has such a love for like he's not doing this because he's evil he's doing this because he wants to survive and I think that's just that's the most human thing that there is is this will to survive I I don't know it really it really strikes me I'm I'm team Hal so (laughs) well on that note thank you so much for listening to another episode of Deja Vu where we have taken the stance of team Hal uh, we are both very excited to share this five-part sci-fi miniseries with you. We will be back in a few weeks with the movie Star Wars Episode Four.